You are listening to Sermon Audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more Sermon Audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Continuing this series today, we, we, we talked last week about how we're spending uh, this whole month kind of digging into, like, right, normally we go verse by verse through books of the Bible, but we're, we're taking a break right now. We just finished up the, some, some time in the Minor Prophets, and we're, we're talking about a specific topic, and we're talking about what it means to be Jesus's family. So uh, if you guys recall, we say this a lot, but we have a very simple kind of mission of what we're doing here at Red Tree, right? We have this simple discipleship process, this thing we're passionate about. We say it a lot, Jesus, family, mission. I have a slide for that. Sorry. I have slides today, Joe. Um, I apologize. The people have spoken. I have to do it. It doesn't kill my soul at all to do that for you guys, I promise. <laughs> uh, we have this very simple thing that we're doing as a church, Jesus Family Mission, right? And we've been talking about this kind of on and off for the last cu- couple of years since, since I stepped in this role of how do, we, how do we come back and wrap around as a church this, this vision that has existed at Red Tree literally since day one, this idea that, that a heart that is wrapped around the person and work of Jesus, right? That if a human being is fully given to the sufficiency and excellency of Jesus, that that will lead to a connection, a covenant, a a commitment to Jesus' family. That, That aligning your heart with the person and work of Christ, the finished work on the cross, will always leads you into deeper commitment with Jesus' family. And the reason is simple. The gospel is that you have been adopted into the family of Christ. The cross bought away for you from death to life, and the movement from death to life is the movement from isolation into the family of God himself, co-heirs with Christ. We are bound together as believers, not out of simple affinity, Hey, we're all St. Louisans, right? Some of us. Hey, we're all, we're all at Red Tree. Hey, we're all... It's not simple affinity that brings us together. Rather, it's the finished work of Christ itself. It's the death on the cross. It's the resurrection at the tomb. It's the ascension unto heaven. It's the blood that washed away sins that bonds us together into one family. And as we, we talk about, as we, as we grow in intimacy and connection with that family of Christ, we will unavoidably find ourselves participating in Jesus' mission. And that mission, of course, is to invite more people into the family, right? And so we said, we're going to take three years and, and really focus in on each of these aspects one by one. And this year, our elders have spent a long time studying, praying, thinking, asking you guys about what it means for us to live in community, to be a family together, right? To actually be bound together in Christ. And this sermon series is our attempt to talk about some of that. And so I brought us back to this, to this uh, community equation, Right? This idea that when you have gospel plus safety plus time, you will begin to experience community. Now, I know like just the fact that I put like a spiritual equation on the screen is gag worthy for a couple of you. And so I apologize for that. But stick, 
Stick with us in this, because I think there's value for us in this. The gospel, the truth, the truth of the excellency and sufficiency of the person and work of Christ. That truth contextualized to an individual's life in the context of real safety, without guilt, without manipulation, without shame, but real safety. That, in that space done enough times, knits hearts together. It builds community. It builds camaraderie. And if we're honest, at some point in our walk with Christ, we have experienced some aspect of that. Maybe it was one specific friendship or relationship with a mentor or discipler. Maybe it was a Sunday school class at a point in our life when we really needed it. Maybe it was a group of people centered around a Bible study or centered around accountability and confession. But whatever it was, we can think back to a place where we were with another human being who knew and loved Jesus. And in that space, we felt safe to be who we actually are. And in that safety, the gospel was contextualized to our life. And it affected us. Right? That's valuable. That's not just valuable. That's key to pursuing a kingdom life. If you want to be the sort of person who has taken your life and, and wrapped it completely around the person and work of Jesus, then this is something you have to figure out. Jesus lived and modeled this kind of community, right? He had the 72, his larger group, but then he had 12. And even in that 12, he had three. Three who knew him more intimately, knew him more deeply. Jesus models this and lived this kind of safety and gospel contextualization over the long haul. Not a three-month commitment to go through a book together, but years of living and walking and doing life together. We have to figure that out if we want to be the sort of people who, who are actually living kingdom-centric lives. Does that make sense? What it comes down to is that Red Tree wouldn't be Red Tree without deep and abiding community. This is, this is core to who we are as a church, who we, what we feel called to by God. If, if we didn't experience that kind of deep and abiding community, it wouldn't be Red Tree anymore. It might be something. It would be a cool church. It might be whatever, but... But, but there's something about that that's so, so core to what we feel called to. To, I think, the unique expression of, of gospel and church life that God is trying to build here in West County through this body. That we need to give that the time and the energy it needs. Does that make sense? So, we jumped into that. We're, we're going to be today in 1 Samuel 18, if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles there. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, we have house Bibles on the end of each row. We would love for you to snag one of those. If you don't own a Bible, by the way, we'd love for you to just take one of those home. Or, or even better yet, you could just ask one of our pastors and we'd get you a nicer one. But 
We're going to be in 1 Samuel 18 today, but before we actually get to that text, I need to do a little bit of work for us. I want to catch us up, and I want to give us some context for what we're about to read today. And so last week, we jumped into this. We basically said, for for four weeks, we're going to talk about different ways we can spend our time together that will foster that kind of gospel plus safety, right? To build, to build the equation. What are, what are different things we can do with our time that will foster that kind of community, hearts knit together relationship? And so last week, we dug into the story in Luke 7 and Jesus' engagement with Simon the Pharisee and the unnamed prostitute. And we talked about how gospel hospitality that sees someone exactly as they are and gives them safety to be present as they are with, without judgment is, is one one of these amazing ways we can spend our time, right? We talked this morning about the spiritual gift of hospitality as, as this, this heart that gives a safe harbor to others in the midst of the storms of life. And there's something about that kind of time, hospitality time, table time, living room time, where we're just creating space for someone to be as they are with us, where they're invited into that, that is really sacred. And that it can foster these kind of environments where the gospel can be contextualized in safety. Does that make sense? And so today, we're going to talk about something, honestly, a little more low-key. We're going to talk about what it looks like to just have friend time, fun time, joyful time. There's not a good name for that. You could call it playtime, but that just sounds really weird. Sounds way too weird. But you're going to get what I'm talking about as we talk about this. We're going to talk about what, what, is it, what does it mean to spend time together that has no agenda other than just the value of the person in their relationship. So, we're in 1 Samuel 18, and we're going to read one of the most famous stories in Scripture regarding friendship and relationship. So let me give you the shotgun version of context for this. We're in the Old Testament. We're talking about the beginnings of the kingdom of Israel, right? So Israel was enslaved in Egypt, and God moved through Moses to free them. And then God moved through Joshua to help them go into the promised land. And then God moved through the judges to help sinful, stuck Israel stay in the promised land. You see, once they went in to the land that God had promised to Abraham, things didn't go well. And Israel never fully took possession of the land God promised them. And and rather than driving out the Philistines and the Canaanites and dwelling there, instead they like rammed into the land and then just kind of coexisted with the people that were there. And it was super destructive. And the book of Judges describes this cycle over and over and over where the scattered and divided tribes of Israel, different pockets of of God's people spread out over this land, continually fell into this cycle where they would fall into sin and idolatry and they would begin to adopt the spiritual practices of the Canaanites and worship their idols and turn away from the covenant they made with God at Sinai. And if you go back and you read the covenant that God made with his people at Sinai, Deuteronomy 28, you'll find that God gave really clear consequences for when the covenant was broken. If you break the covenant, you will be conquered and things will go badly. And so Judges tells of this cycle 
where different pockets of Israel falls into idolatry and breaks the covenant, and God gives them the consequences he promised, and they're conquered and oppressed, and they're suffering, and then they fall on their faces before God in repentance, and then God continually raises up these men and women called judges, these Holy Spirit-empowered people who lead the people back to repentance, lead them back into their commitment in the covenant at Sinai, and then blessings come and oppression ceases, and they have a season of peace, and then the judge dies, and then they go back into the cycle, and they fall back into idolatry. And the book of Judges shows this cycle over and over and over and over and over to the point where it just says, this isn't working. And the people of Israel come to God and say, we just want a king. We want a king that will unite us together. And, and we're stuck. We, we get this story in 1 Samuel as Samuel, the last of the judges, helps Israel process this request. And he warns them and says, an earthly king is not what you need. The covenant you made says that God is your king. He will lead you. You need to stay faithful to the covenant. And they say, no, that's not what we need. We need a dude who's really good with a sword who can unite our tribes together into one kingdom. Then we can conquer the land and drive out the Canaanites and have peace. And God says, if that's what they want, give that to them. And so he anoints this guy, Saul, to be the king over Israel. And for the first time, Israel's tribes are united together again into one nation. And Saul unites the tribes and has a lot of military success. And they're able to drive away a lot of their enemies and take a lot of territory. But the reality is, Saul, first and foremost, is a sinful human. He can't do the role that God was appointed to do for these people. And so he begins to fail and falter, and he begins to struggle in the tension between leading his people and honoring God, and eventually the dude collapses into chaos. The weight of the untenable position he's been put in crushes him, and the dude goes insane. And God removes his anointing from him. And the dude actually begins to be demonically oppressed. It's crazy. And he's living in more and more outright rebellion. There's actually a point in the story where Saul is so angry at God for how God has worked out his kingship that he actually goes to like essentially an Israelite seminary where, where priests and prophets are being trained up and discipled. And he just slaughters them all just kills all of them in like anger and frustration. It's, it's crazy watching Saul's ascent and descent, right? Well, in the midst of this, God anoints a new king, David. King David, right? One of the most famous figures in the Old Testament is set up by God to secede Saul. He has removed his blessing from Saul's kingship and is placing authority on David. God actually makes a covenant with David that David's reign will last forever. It's a messianic prophecy of Christ, who's a descendant of David, right? So, so God is moving to establish David's kingdom. Saul is still reigning. David has already been anointed. Saul doesn't know David's been anointed, but Saul knows things are pretty terrible. And this is kind of where we start to pick up the story. Israel's enemies rally themselves against Israel, and they rally for themselves a champion, a giant, 
this dude who's just an absolute beast, and they say, hey, we've been having all these petty squabbles back and forth. How about this? How about we send out our best fighter, and you send out your best fighter, and whoever wins, they get to rule, and the other one has to be the slaves. So we can stop all this like petty little fights and all the slaughter. And Israel's like, sounds like a great idea. And then they see the Philistine champion, and it's Goliath, and he's this massive beast, and they go, sounds like a bad idea. And they, they cower, and they hide, and it spreads out into months of them going, there's no one here who can kill this guy. We're going to lose. This is going to be awful. And then God sends David into the scene in what is literally one of the most famous stories in the Bible. David and Goliath, the shepherd boy, battles the giant, right? David doesn't wear any armor. He doesn't bring a sword. He shows up literally with a sling and a stone, and he like just shoots the thing perfectly, caves in Goliath's skull and kills him, and Israel wins the day. And Israel doesn't just win the day, they rout their enemies, and they send them fleeing, and they take a bunch of territory. Our text picks up directly after this. Israel has just won this massive victory with this young man, David, and they're making their way back to the camp and recounting the stories and, the, and sharing the spoils and doing all of that. And we pick up here in 1 Samuel 18, starting in verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, Saul had asked David, who the heck are you that you did this awesome work? The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Jonathan is the son of Saul, the heir apparent. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of the people and also in the sight of of Saul's servants. And this is the word of the Lord. So, what happened in this text, and what are we going to do with this? I want to I point out for us a couple contextual pieces so we can kind of wrap our heads around the larger story here. And then I want to point out a couple historical pieces that will help us kind of understand the text a little better. And I think this is going to bring us all together, and we'll end out our time uh, I think with a really clear word from Jesus out of Galatians that I think will be good for us. So, essentially, this story is really simple. David wins this massive victory for Israel. Israel goes on this spree of just routing their enemies. And when everyone comes back to celebrate, Saul goes, who the heck did that? Who was that guy? Bring him here. Who are you? And David's like, oh, my name's David. I'm son of Jesse. I'm just a, just a dude. And they're like, this is crazy. But something in that moment flips a switch in Jonathan's heart. Jonathan, the son of Saul, the heir apparent, the, the crown prince of Israel, something flips a switch in him, and he just connects with David. They just connect. And it says their souls are knit together. They build this deep and abiding friendship, right? To the point that Jonathan formalizes the friendship and says, let's covenant together our friendship. Let's covenant this relationship. 
and, and, and make this something we, we like commit ourselves to before God. And they do. And then there's this weird thing where Jonathan gives him a bunch of gifts, and then Saul invites David or basically tells David, hey, you're, you're going to live in the court now. You're going to live in the royal court. And he gives him a royal task over the armies. And David does immensely well. Now, if you read the rest of the story, it gets really bad from here really fast. <laughs> Putting the new anointed king in the household of the old, like, discredited king does not go well. Saul descends really quickly. This, this goes into things of Saul attempting to kill David, David fleeing for his life, then Saul being like, I want to let you marry my daughter, and David being like, uh, okay. <laughs> and this back and forth of this weird <laughs> entanglement, and there's this tension because Saul grows more and more in his hatred of David, and all the while Jonathan loves David, and David is left in this weird tension where he lives with the king who hates him and wants to kill him, but his best friend is the son of the king who doesn't fully believe that his dad is as evil as, as, as David is making it out to be, and it goes back and forth and back and forth and builds into this tension until finally David sets up Jonathan with a scheme where he says, listen, go test your father like this, and we'll see how he reacts. If he gets mad, then you know he's actually trying to kill me, but if he's cool about it, I'll confess that I was wrong, and I'll come back. And Saul doesn't just get mad, he actually attempts to kill his son in his anger in the moment. And so Jonathan comes back to David and says, you were right, I'm so sorry, you need to go. And there's this beautiful scene, beautiful scene, where Jonathan and David see each other for the last time, and they're in a field as Jonathan is helping David escape into the night, and they fall into each other's embrace weeping. It's a, really, it's a really powerful scene, and we're going we're gonna to talk about that bit a little later. But this, what we have today, is the beginning of this. It's the beginning of this friendship. And the actual story is really plain, right? David does something awesome in the army, and as it happens, like, right, this kind of brother-at-arms, soldiers-on-a-task thing, like him and one of the other warriors become friends. They, they bond together over this common work they've done. And they become deep friends, and they formalize that friendship. And David is invited into the family, and he's given a task, and he does really well. And that's kind of the story. So let me pick apart a couple pieces of this for us. The first one is this. If you study this text on your own, the very first thing you'll find if you start Googling this is, we're Jonathan and David Gay. Um, which is pretty ludicrous, actually. Not, not because I'm actually saying anything about gay relationships, but just because it's very dismissive of the world this story was written in. You see, the, the issue is that in our culture, we have no concept of deep, intimate, loving friendships. We think we do, but we have no concept of this kind of deep, committed, heart-knit-together friendship. And so when we see it, something in modern Western culture looks at two men embracing and weeping and covenanting their lives together and goes, well, I mean, it must have been erotic, right? <laughs> they must have been like really into it. No, they're just friends. They're just deep, deep friends in a way that we've, in, in a lot of ways, lost in our culture. And the Bible affirms that idea over and over and over. People who have 
committed, deep, passionate, soul-knit-together kind of friendship. And so if you study this on your own, that'll be the first thing you find on Google, and you need to move past that and, and get into the actual story here, because that's honestly just a distraction from the beauty of this text. The beauty of this text. You see, we can get this idea that two soldiers on the battlefield living through something painful and hellish, but receiving like divine blessed victory, that that shared experience would in some way build comradeship, right? We can get that and understand that. But Jonathan sees this as something deeper, something in his heart connects to David on a deeper level. There were a lot of soldiers on the battlefield, but Jonathan says his heart was knit to David's heart. He loved him as his own soul, right? There's this deeper level to this. And and what happens here is really interesting. You see, as soon as this bond kind of comes into play, seemingly separate from that, Saul brings David into his court. He essentially says, hey, dude, you're not going home. You're living with me now. You're awesome. You're going to come live in the palace. This is great. I have a job for you. This is going to be cool. And that's, again, a relatively normal thing. He had won this great victory for his king. And so the king rewards him by inviting him into his home. But here's what's cool about this. David is drawn into Saul's family, but we actually know as the story progresses that Saul isn't, doesn't actually love David like family. He actually deeply mistrusts him. And by the way, he has a really good reason to deeply distrust David. In this culture, power, like power is a thing. And David just won this mighty victory as a warrior. And the people immediately begin to question Saul's power and authority next to David's. As the armies come home, they're singing chants about how much greater David is than Saul, right? And so Saul immediately builds this mistrust. And even though he's invited David into his home, part of it's like, yeah, this dude's a good warrior. I need to reward him. I need to give him a good job. Part of it is I need to keep this dude close to me. I don't need him building a following and a support and, and, and like setting up a coup. I don't need that junk. So David, you're going to come live with me now. You're going to be one of my warriors, right? Keep your friends close. Keep your enemies closer sort of thing. So on the one hand, it's beautiful to see that Saul has drawn David into the family, but we can already see that he hasn't. He's invited David into his home, but he's not invited David into his heart. He hasn't grown an affection for David. And Jonathan's not okay with that because Jonathan loves David as his own soul. So Jonathan covenants to him. And we get this really weird scene, right, where Jonathan gives David all these gifts. 
He gives him his robe. He gives him his armor. He gives him his sword. He gives him his belt. It's this whole thing. And if you've heard this preached before, you'll hear sometimes pastors say, oh, this was this formal thing of Jonathan kind of surrendering his throne and saying, nope, you're the king, you're the anointed one. That's actually not the case at all. There is a lot of symbolism in this, and you as the reader knowing that David has already been anointed king, you're kind of like, oh shoot, the crown prince is giving the anointed king like royal armor and a royal robe. Like That's kind of like foreshadowing. But this isn't something conscious that Jonathan's doing. It's not like he's surrendering his identity as the crown prince. No, he actually loves David so much that he realizes that first off, David's being set up here. He realizes that this honor David has received to come live in the court is not all it's cracked up to be. And second off, he realizes that David has no, like, it doesn't fit in. He's a shepherd. He's poor. And he's being invited to come live in the palace. And so Jonathan says, take my robe. Take my armor. Take my sword. Take my battle belt so that you won't just be in our home, you'll be equals with me as family. See, Saul draws him into the family, but Jonathan lifts him up as an equal, right? So that when David shows up for work on Monday, and he walks into the palace, he has clothes to wear. And when he goes to lead those soldiers who've been led by princes, He has armor to wear and a sword to put on. It isn't a hand-me-down from his big brothers, right? Jonathan honors and elevates David out of his love and affection for him. I love that picture. I love that picture. It wasn't enough for him to be invited in because there were mixed motives in that. Jonathan invites him in and raises him up. And loves him practically. Invites him into life. Invites him into kind of affection. I think we get this beautiful picture here of what Jesus met in John 13. By this, the whole world will know that you are my disciples. That you love one another. This is Jonathan showing deep, abiding, committed affection and love for his friend. Right? And he needs it. Like, he actually really needs it. This is something that, that, John, that David is going to need over the coming months and years because his life is about to get insane. The minute he goes to live in this palace, things start getting bad for him. And they go from bad to worse. I want to show you guys a painting here. This is Rembrandt's Jonathan and David. I showed you a Rembrandt last week. I like Rembrandt. Rembrandt painted this near the end of his life. He painted it after his wife had died and he lost every penny he owned in a lawsuit. They're really dark. I'm sorry, that's just how he paints. If you look at it, what you can see, there's this guy, this prince in a turban, embracing this other man who's kind of like weeping into his shoulder. And so you have Jonathan, the crown prince, right, his big turban, and you have David, David leaning into him weeping. 
And it's a really, it's a really powerful image. You should Google it later. It's a good, it's a good painting. Um, it's a powerful image. And you can even see the mourning and the sorrow that Rembrandt, as the painter, was going through as he put this together. But I think this also gives this this amazing picture of this story. And here's what I love about it. Jonathan is the crown prince of Israel. And he is decked out in his regalia in this painting. He's wearing his turban and his fine robe. He's, he's in his splendid ring. And so is David. David the shepherd boy is wearing this royal robe and this royal encrusted sword, right? That was given to him by Jonathan. He's able to stand in this place because of the love and affection that's been shown to him. And so when they finally have to part, when things get so bad that they know this is almost certainly the last time we're going to see each other, David is wrecked and he falls apart. And it says they, it says they wept before David had to flee into the night. There's something about this image that I think shows us the kind of knit-together hearts we're talking about. Their circumstances changed drastically, and all of a sudden, their practical friendship, right, of we're war buddies and we go out and beat up the Philistines and we live in the palace and eat good food, their buddy-buddy their camaraderie had to come to an end. Just had to. Circumstances changed, and now David is running for his life. And Jonathan at this point knows David's going to be king, not me. He knows it. And so they come together for this last time. And Jonathan just says, I love you, dude. I'm for you. You do need to be king, not me. Just show mercy in my family when you, when you become king. And they weep, and he sends them off. And the story keeps going. It's a beautiful story. You should read First and Second Samuel. But... But I love this image. It shows, it shows us this kind of Jesus love. That, that, not that the buddy-buddy stuff wasn't awesome, right? They were young men who were soldiers and they were on the winning side and, and they were living in the palace and they grew in friendship and all that stuff is awesome. But it led to something deeper. It led to a space where their hearts were knit together and when their lives fell apart, they embraced each other in love. They supported each other, right? David, by the way, never does see Jonathan again. He goes off following God's call in his life, being obedient, and Jonathan dies in combat shortly after that. And they never see each other again. And when David does ascend to the throne, he actually goes out of his way to honor Jonathan. He hunts down and finds Jonathan's kids, who've been taken into hiding. And he brings, there's an amazing, like a famous story of David brings Mephibosheth, who's Jonathan's crippled son, into his home and lets him live with him for the rest of his life as a way of remembering his friendship and his connection to Jonathan. So, why do I share that with us? What's, what's the purpose of that story today? What I love about this is Jonathan David's friendship starts as simple, like, 
drinking buddies, bros, college-age guys as you can possibly imagine. In that day, two young men who are on the winning side and they just become friends. And yet, over the course of their lives, they become family. Their hearts knit together. And they become close, dear, intimate friends. Beloved, I think this is a picture of the gospel for us today. I'm going to read a text from Galatians chapter 4. I'd love for you to turn from this. Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. It says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I love this text. It's one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible. It says, through the finished work on the cross, the person of Jesus, he is sufficient that that he has not just saved you, but he has raised you up and adopted you into his family as sons. I'm sorry, ladies, but that language is actually really important. As sons. Because in the day when this was written, A daughter's inheritance was that her dad married her off. But a son's inheritance was that whatever was the father's was his. And so Paul is specific to say, you haven't been adopted as children. You've been adopted as sons. And as sons, you are heirs. And everything that is his is yours. co-heirs with Christ, you have been lifted out of the death of the curse and your own sins, and you've not just been forgiven, not just been given a blank slate, but you have been elevated into the very family of God. Christ's blood didn't just wash away your sin. No, it gave you Christ's righteousness. It invited you into his family. It elevated you up into the very family of God as co-heirs with Christ so that our hearts can cry, Abba, Father. So that we can approach the throne of God with confidence and full assurance. This is the gospel that we've been invited into. So, when we talk about community, when we talk about being family in Christ, about being church family, this is what we're talking about. You are co-heirs with Christ. 
You have been bought with his blood and elevated into the royal family. You've not just been brought in as a beggar to sit at the table, but Christ has elevated you and placed his own robe and his own armor and his own sword and his own belt upon you. That you may live in his blessings, receiving his due. Man, man, what a God we serve. What a gospel we've been given. What a family we've been invited into. So yes, our hearts should be knit together. We should spend time with other Christians and something in your soul should come alive and say, that is a co-heir with me in Christ. That is a person who I will live in eternity with, in union with our Savior who elevated us. Your heart should realize that. But how often when we engage with other Christians, does our heart instead go to a ton of other places? Yeah, that person's a believer, but they're kind of a little, they're kind of a little crazy charismatic. You know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah, I know they're in my church, but that person's like super needy. And anytime we're in GC, they just like take all the time talking about themselves. And if I'm totally honest, like it's just kind of annoying. And I'm like, come on, dude, we're all here. Not just you. Right? How often does our heart go to all these defining things beside, that is my co-heir. Because if we're honest, our hearts aren't knit together. They're not. We're, we're, we're really, if we're honest, we live a really individualistic Christianity. I can praise God all day long that he's elevated me and made me a co-heir. That's amazing, man. What a gospel. But when you start going, yeah, but everyone else in this room is your co-heir also, man. Everyone else. That's something you've got to wrestle with. Because those people can kind of annoy me. Or maybe they're mean to me. Or maybe they wrong me. Or maybe we just don't connect. Or maybe they don't have relational capacity to connect with me. Or maybe they said something that struck me the wrong way, and I just don't know if I can trust them anymore. And maybe they've been doing some stuff that's just pretty fishy, and I've been keeping track of it. And maybe I need to talk to them about that before I talk about our hearts being it together. Guys. You are co-heirs with Christ. Beloved, you have been elevated into the very family of God. You. You. He placed his robe on you, gave you. He he invited you into the family. Come on. Can we not approach our brothers and sisters with the same kind of patience? and love, and assumptions of the best. Not, not even to speak of, can we actually love our siblings the way Christ has loved us? Can we elevate them? Treat them as equals? Put our blessings upon them? Knit our hearts to theirs? Covenant ourselves to them? Come on, guys. 
I know, like, I know you guys, I know Red Tree well enough to know that I'm saying this, and a lot of you are like, yeah, I'd love to be there. I'd love to be there. I'm not, but I'd love to be there. Where do I start? What do we do? How do we get there? How do I knit my heart to other believers in this room and in this community? Because I want. Well, I'm going to give you a really simple one. Hang out. Do some fun stuff together. Bond yourself around some common interests where you can lock arms together and do something important. I'm going to show you guys a picture, and this is kind of where we're going to end out our time. This is my old pickup truck. Escalations 4. <laughs> Wait for it. Uh-oh. There's a picture of my old pickup truck, and uh, it's awful. I hope it comes up so you can see it. I had, I had this in college, I had, in high school and college, I had this 1992 F-150 that uh, we got from a graveyard. It was their maintenance truck, and it said St. Charles Memorial Gardens down the side. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and it, just, it just fell apart. It got hit by a salt truck and like caved in the side and the door wouldn't open. And, and I was into, my, my dad's a mechanic and I was into working on cars at the time. And so I just started like swapping out parts to like keep the thing going. And there was a point in college where it had, it had a forest green bed and, and metallic blue doors and a black fender and a white hood. And it got to the point where it rusted so bad like my foot fell through the floor pan while I was driving. This is amazing. This is amazing truck. And I wish you guys could, I wish you could share it with me because it's so good. I love this truck. And I hated this truck all at the same time. But I love this truck. And I'll tell you why I'm sharing it with you. I, I've told some of you guys, when I was in college, I got connected to this group of guys and we really covenanted ourselves to each other. And, and it was the first time I experienced this kind of community. Now we were living, most of us, on campus or in campus housing at Lindenwood University. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but Lindenwood's a dry campus, and uh, you can't drink alcohol. And, uh, you know, being good college students, we wanted to drink alcohol uh, and, and couldn't. And so what we would do is we would park my truck on the curb, and we would set the keys on the hood, and we would all sit in the bed of the truck uh, drinking cheap beer and eating Cheetos and talking until 3 in the morning. Weird, right? But we weren't in campus housing, so it was okay. <laughs> we weren't in campus housing, so it was all right. And so we would sit in the bed of this truck and just, just dig through life and, and talk and, and confess and work through stuff. And I, guys, I, I, I watched one of my closest friends in the world totally deconstruct his faith and walk away in the bed of that truck and, and curse God in his anger. And I watched one of my friends fall deeper and deeper into destructive sexual patterns and sexual addiction in the back of that truck. And we also worked through gospel stuff and prayed and cried together and talked about life and girls we wanted to date. And it was just this place that became really sacred and really safe just to sit in the bed of my truck, four, five, six, eight guys, and eat Cheetos and drink cheap beer and talk about life. And it was a thing. And it just became really, really precious to me.
But here's what's amazing. Here's what's amazing about it and what I love about it and the reason I wanted to share it with you guys. We didn't start with a deep dive into someone's personal hurts and why they were deconstructing their faith and how the gospel spoke into that. We started with, man, doesn't it stink that Linda won't let us drink in this house even though we're renting it? (laughs) That's where we started. We started just as young guys who wanted to hang out and wanted to talk about girls and do that stuff. But man, there was something about just that, that, that really normal, fun friendship that created space for us to take the next step and push a little farther and commit a little more and knit our hearts together a little more and a little more and a little more until literally one night we sat down and we wrote out a covenant and we covenanted our friendship together. And I still see all those guys. And we get together and we share our lives and our spouses have come to know each other and our kids have come to know each other. And it literally started because a group of guys just wanted to hang out. So I'm telling you guys, there's no shortcut to this. You can't just walk up to someone in this room and go, you're a Christian and I like you. Now our hearts are knit together. You can try that. See what happens. (laughs) It starts with slow steps and you cannot shortcut it. Affection grows slowly over time. Hearts knit together as you share foolish and seemingly meaningless moments of life together. But as you do that and you commit to that and you keep pushing to the next level of commitment and the next level of love and the next level of serving the other, the next thing you know, the next thing you know, your heart is knit together with another person. And as co-heirs with Christ, you are working through the nitty-gritty a life together with Jesus. And guys, it's stinking painful because not everyone will make that journey with you. Some people will flame out and say, this is not worth it, forget it, get out of here. And they will leave you hurt and angry and confused. And some people's circumstances will just straight up change and they'll have to leave. And it's painful. And you go, but I invested so much in this and now you're moving or now you're doing this? Yeah. Yeah, they are. So lean into each other and weep. And then turn back around and keep inviting people into the bed of your truck. Because it's worth it. It's worth it to take those slow and steady steps to grow in friendship, to knit your hearts together, to live in community, because you are co-heirs with Christ. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. This is your friends and your family for eternity. They are worth a little bit of sacrifice and a little bit of pain and a little bit of confusion. They're worth it. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.